0: Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Elisandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week is one of my favorite types of episodes that I get to do for this show. One that isn't exactly one story that I want to tell you, one thing that you need to hear, but rather a collection of things that I, I just, I feel like I need to talk to you about. Some things that got left on the cutting room floor, and I kind of mean literally, like there's audio that I'm going to play for you that literally was recorded for an episode, but I edited it out, and some stuff that that I just want to share with you. Today, we're going to go through a couple of really interesting and fun stories, some little tidbits, some, some recollections, and honestly, a few corrections from uh, the last year or so of the show that I want to share with you today. So, this is Spring Stories. Tales of frogs and manatees and flowers. But first things first, uh, I'm going to feel a little bit like Mr. Rogers here, but I got some mail that I want to share with you. Got it just this week. I've been waiting to open it on microphone for you. It is from... The Save the Manatee Club. Now, if you remember, we've talked about it a few times on the show with our friend Max Chesnes, a journalist from the TC Palm. He's been on the show twice to talk about this, but the manatees of Florida are at risk. They are losing the seagrass that is their most predominant food, the thing that is most relevant to their diet. So there are lots of scientists, including a scientist named Leray Simpson, who you will see on this show very soon this summer who are working on this project, a way to get seagrass more accessible to manatees yet again. But one organization that has been long a part of the protection and care of manatees in Florida is the Save the Manatee Club. Now, I got to tell you, I have been a fan of the Save the Manatee Club for pretty much as long as this show has existed. I went in search of manatees a couple years ago now to, to see their natural location and see them during the cold weather months. They go to Blue Spring Park where they gather for warm water and, and that's where I went. I'll, I'll include the original episode where I visited them and the episode with Max Chesnus in the episode description so you can hear more about that. But I donated to Save the Manatee Club. I adopted a manatee. And, and I'd like to tell you why. It's because his name is Nick. Well, actually his name is Crazy Nick. But I, uh, I, I'm i just narcissistic enough to want to adopt a manatee who uh, has the same name as me. So <laughs> when I saw that Nick was the name of a manatee, especially a manatee who was called Crazy Nick, well, I decided... I wanted to adopt him and one of the things that comes with manatee adoption is you get a packet about your manatee so i wanted to open my official save the manatee envelope on air with you right now here we go okay Okay, so it's a manila envelope and there's another envelope inside says save the manatee club and it says adopt a manatee materials enclosed. I'm a father. I'm a father. I have a son and he is a manatee. Okay. Oh my god. Well, first up, there's a little bit about the Blue Spring State Park, which is where I went to see manatees a couple years ago uh, with my girlfriend, Robin, and we saw so many of these beautiful manatees. And, and this is all about uh, watching them and, and keeping an eye out for them and the volunteers that support them. But uh, it's also got a lot about their the families of manatees that live around there, the, the different matriarchies that are protected by the Save the Manatee Club, which is uh, really amazing. The fact that, that, that they are able to track them and give them names and keep an eye on them the way that, the way that they do. Okay. Okay, <laughs> this is the document that I've been waiting for. Okay, so so there's other things inside of here. Uh, some just good advice, tips. This is a picture of a manatee that says, if you love me, please don't touch or feed me, which I love, both, both as good advice on dealing with manatees and also because it's a, a, just a funny sentence. But also, uh, there's a great picture of a chubby looking manatee. And that's good stuff. There is some, some great stuff in here. Information, ways to take care of the manatees, ways to look out for them, advice on teaching other people about manatees, just some some really important stuff, especially for the, the situations that manatees are dealing with right now. But we have come to the most important piece of information within this packet. Okay, here it is. I'm holding a piece of paper in my hands. You can hear it. There it is. It says certificate of adoption. Nick D'Alessandro is an official adoptive parent of... Nick. (laughs) (laughs) It just says Nick. It doesn't. It doesn't have that he's nicknamed Crazy Nick. That's in the second document. But this main document, it just says Nick DeLisandro is an official adoptive parent of Nick. Now, I like that it says in an official adopted parent. N as in there's multiple, it's not just me, we're a collective, we, it, you know, it takes a village to raise a manatee, and uh, if if any of you listeners happen to also be an adoptive parent of Nick the manatee, please let me know, but I'll read the rest of the certificate. Nick Delisandro is an official adoptive parent of Nick, an imperiled West Indian manatee, and then it says at the bottom, uh, Blue Spring State Park, that's where he lives, uh, but the most essential part of this is that at the bottom of it, there's a signature, uh, and the signature is denoted to Jimmy Buffett, Yep. Jimmy Buffett, the singer, is a co-chairman of the Save the Manatee Club Board of Directors. That is true. I believe I talked about that in that first episode about manatees. But uh, I've got a a printed signature of Jimmy Buffett here, so, you know, kind of a big deal, on my official adoption certificate for my son, Nick the Manatee. But they also include a biography of Nick the Manatee. Uh, He was first identified in 1977. They don't know who his mother was. He is a male Uh, I'll just read a couple snippets here. Quote, He was nicknamed Crazy Nick by manatee researchers because he used to be so unpredictable. He spent two weeks traveling from Blue Spring to North Jacksonville in the winter months instead of the other way around. When the majority of the Blue Spring manatees went to Lake Beresford to feed, Nick went to Mud Lake. The only times Nick went to Beresford was when all the others went to Mud Lake. End quote. So he's a bit of an isolationist, a lone wolf. He walks his own path. He doesn't go where all the other manatees go. He's a rebel. He's, he's an independent character. Quote, even without being tagged, Nick is identifiable to researchers because of his unique pattern of scars left behind from boat strikes. End quote. So, just as any other manatee living in Florida waters, he suffers these boat strikes, but he is... His own guy. He does his own thing. I I will remind you that it says that he was first identified in 1977, which means he's probably older than that, uh, which puts my son at about 20 years at least older than me. So, that's not usually how parent-child relationships works, but I think that me and Nick Jr. will make it work. Anyway... I've adopted a son. If you are an adoptive parent of Nick, Crazy Nick, the manatee, please let me know. Or if you know someone who is an adoptive parent of Crazy Nick, the manatee, I would love to get into contact. We can be a family. We can have birthday parties for him or something. But uh, I just had to let you know. Now for the first correction of, of the show. Uh, a correction that I've been uh, with kind of the reason that I wanted to make this episode because... I have gained a few uh, friends through this show, some, some really wonderful nature writers, and we have mutual friends, including someone you'll hear from later in this episode. But I got a message on Instagram from someone who uh, is a listener to the show and has been listening to the episodes. One such listener is Gerald Thompson. He reached out to me recently because he was listening to an episode from last summer about the other skunk apes of Florida. In that episode, I went to Lettuce Lake over near Tampa with my friend Bailey and my girlfriend Robin, and we were looking for anything we were just going on a nice walk through the woods and also because there was a pretty compelling footage of a skunk ape which is florida's own bigfoot i'm sure you remember but while i was out in the woods in in a section that was called a cypress dome there was a sound that we all heard a sound that i recorded and included in the episode i will play that original audio from that hike for you right now we're in a cypress dome deep in the woods and we all hear this sound yeah, there's one back there, there's one close here, that I think is smaller, maybe younger, because he's he's higher up. I can't see him. Now, from my time in the woods, I know that gators have a pretty distinctive sound. Alligators have this grunting sound, this sort of deep, bellowing, bassy sound that, that lets... Other animals in the area know that they're around. Do not mess with them. They are here. And in that episode, I say that that sound is an alligator. That when you're walking through the woods, if you are a, you know, uh, early Spaniard explorer, if you hear that sound, it's only natural for you to think that it might be a monster of some kind. That's kind of essential to the story of the episode. Skunk ape, alligator, scary sounds in the woods, etc. But Gerald reached out to me and told me that, in fact, the sound that I'm hearing is actually coming from an animal called the pig frog that's right the pig frog i'm going to include a link that he sent me of the mating call of the pig frog right now (coughs) that is from the smithsonian and if you look up a pig frog okay picture in your mind like the most basic frog you can imagine just like a frog probably green probably a little chunky got the big black eyes on top that's literally what a pig frog looks like i mean that 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 is exactly what they look like They are seen everywhere in Florida. I have seen so many pig frogs throughout Florida that I can't even believe it anymore. They're usually green or black. They have these little dark spots along their back. They're they're similar in shape to the American bullfrog, but they're a little bit smaller. They are everywhere in Florida, quote, with the exception of the keys, end quote. They are everywhere. They love water. They love our amphibious ecosystem. They are just a a prominent part of our lives in Florida. You've probably caught a pig frog in your life. If you are hearing a sound, if you're hearing this this deep, bellowing sound out of the woods, maybe don't be so worried that it's an alligator. Maybe it's a pig frog. I have another correction from actually two weeks ago, the episode with our friend Stacy Matrazo from the Florida Wildflower Foundation. Really quickly, uh, this is just a minor thing, something I want to fix. It's in the episode description now, just something I wanted to make clear. This is a quote from Stacy Matrazo from an email after the episode came out. I'm just going to read it to you directly. Quote, the only thing that was incorrect is that the foundation does not give land grants. Our grant programs provide funding for native plantings on public lands, but we do not own or gift actual land. End quote. I've included that in the description of that episode just to make that clear because the Florida Wildflower Foundation does so many amazing things. I don't want to make it unclear what they do. They, they really do some important stuff and, and are a huge part of wildflowers presence in our lives in Florida's ecosystem to that end. I wanted to play another quote for you from Stacy Matrazo. If you listened to that episode, you heard us talk a lot about wildflowers, their presence in our lives, their importance in our lives. The First Lady of the United States, Lady Bird Johnson's influence on wildflowers and how they influenced her. But one thing that we talked about that actually I had to edit out of the episode was about the Florida state wildflower, which is the coreopsis they are beautiful little flowers yellow and red i was just hiking about a week ago and i saw some coreopsis and i was just blown away they are so beautiful at the time that they were made the Florida State Wildflower back in 1991, there is a quote from one of the politicians that had a part in making it the Florida State Wildflower. It's the Republican representative from Ormond Beach, one Richard Graham. This is a quote from the Orlando Sentinel from October 17, 1991, quote, Graham said he sponsored the bill because Florida was one of the few states without a state wildflower and the coreopsis seemed like a good choice because it grows in every county, end quote. Representative Graham also apparently called the Coriopsis, quote, paths of sunshine, end quote. The state flower, of course, is the orange blossom, a title that the orange blossom has held since 1909. It took a little over 80 years for us to get an official state wildflower, but we settled on the Coriopsis, which just makes sense. But here's the thing there are many, many Coriopsis species different variations throughout the state of florida the one that is our actual state wildflower is called coreopsis leavenworthii, which isn't that a prison leavenworth anyway stacy in our interview i asked her a little bit more about the state wildflower and here's what she had to say i've always been interested in why the coreopsis and is is it a common flower do we see it i mean i've seen Coryopsis, but is it common enough that it, you think it's like indicative of our wildflower community
1: yeah, because there are, you know, 14 different species of um, Coryopsis. You, you do see them, depending on the habitat you're in, but there are dry species, wet species. They're found from the panhandle down to the Keys, so it is a wide-ranging genus.
0: The Orlando Sentinel describes the Leavenworth leavenworthii as, quote, the daisy-like yellow flower with a brown middle looks a bit like Maryland state flower, the black-eyed Susan. End quote. So, that is a big thing you need to keep an eye out when you're out in the Florida woods, if you're looking for wildflowers. You need to be able to distinguish between these two flowers. It's something I'm still working on, honestly. Sometimes I'll see a black-eyed Susan and go, is that a choreopsis? No, no, that's a black-eyed Susan. They have just slight differences in them. Look at them next to each other, and don't get them confused. One of them's is a state wildflower. One of them is Maryland's state wildflower, which is very strange to me, because if you remember, Two years ago now, I did an episode about Florida's state song and how our state song was a song called Florida, My Florida, which was inspired by Maryland's state song, Maryland, My Maryland. Isn't that weird? Lots of weird connections between Maryland and Florida. We're going to have to write about that again sometime. Now, you're going to have to forgive how much I have been talking about plants this season. It's not going to stop. I'm on a plant Kick right now, I'm trying to be more aware. Ever since the Florida Native Plant Society made me conscious of what is called plant blindness, a, a fact of human beings where we just don't seem to be able to distinguish plants from one another because we just don't care about them, I've been trying to undo that in myself, to be more conscious of individual plants and individual roles that they have in our ecosystem. So I've been looking out for them more and more. So I've been trying to be a part of of learning about them and, and keeping an eye out when I go on hikes. Even when I'm out driving, I'll see wildflowers, trees. I'm doing my part as best as I can to separate them from one another. But part of why I got into that crusade, so to speak, is because I went on this amazing hike with Lily Anderson Messick. You heard it, The Search for the Florida Torea. It's an episode from earlier this season. I love it so much. It was such an inspirational trip for me, but I had to actually edit something out of that episode, something that needs to be told to you Right now, because it's it's something that Lily is actually talking about a lot on her Instagram, which, by the way, I mentioned it in that episode. You have to follow her on Instagram. She posts amazing stuff. She's always doing incredible work out in the field. So you have to follow her and see what she's up to. But she actually recently put up a post about invasive plants and the huge impact that they're having on our ecosystem and our terrea. So when Lily and I were on this hike, we actually separated for a moment. She went pretty far away from me, and and I was able to get audio of her across this kind of gorge, this, this kind of big open space between two elevations that we were on, as she was plucking up a plant literally to the roots. She was ripping these bright crimson berries off of them, and then after she plucked as many as she could and literally shoved them into pockets on the side of her pants, she would then cut the branches off, and then... Sometimes she would just rip them out by the roots. I mean, it was, it was intense, but it's important because these invasive plants are having a very serious impact on our ecosystem. So here is an interview that I did with Lily in the woods in late January from across a distance as she is trimming and destroying this invasive plant that is having such a negative impact. Here is Lily Anderson-Messick of the Florida Native Plant Society. What was the species uh, I'm recording? What was the species of, of of plant that you're dealing with right now? This is Nandina
1: domestica. It's heavenly bamboo. Is a common name, and it is a terrible invasive in the Panhandle.
0: Yeah. So you're plucking the berries and putting them in your pocket, and then killing the the plant itself? Well, I'm not. I'm actually cutting back the plant. Oh, I see. Dig
1: it up. Uh, quite a feat, because they've got an extensive root system. So I'm cutting it what I can down, and then collecting any seeds so that the seeds won't germinate and create babies.
0: What is the like impact of this of this plant?
1: Um, this whole area would become a carpet of an andina. And oh. that means that it would eventually kill our other trees and that means it's also replacing wildlife food. It has, you know, cascading impacts on
0: um, the ecosystem. Wow. Well luckily it's bright red, so you can spot it at a distance.
1: Yes. That's also probably why it got here.
0: Do other botanists do this when they encounter this cut type of plant or any type of invasive plant like this in the wild? I'm definitely pretty
1: passionate about invasive species because I know how work.
0: I mean, you just marched over there the second you saw that. fact that it's all the way out here yeah. in a area that we were just talking about like people have not been to and who knows how long yeah. and it's just here in the middle of this this mess yeah because birds eat the berries right and then poop, poop. Them out
1: and the berries are talking
0: So this thing is like bad in 10 different ways. (laughs) What's that? I said, so this plant is like bad in like 10 different ways. Oh, yeah. Now, it was hard for me to cut that audio from the original episode because it's just so interesting. But I wanted to make the story clear. We're talking about the Torea and its protection. And as much as the invasive species is a part of that story, I I wanted to focus in on the tree itself and its importance and relevance. However, I needed to share that with you because it's it's just so interesting. It's just such a bizarre thing. And also, the circumstance of Lily all the way over there and me on the other side just <laughs> trying to get the best audio that I could. Anyway, by the time we got back to the truck, she mentioned it in our post-interview a couple weeks after that trip. Our pockets were just filled with these berries and we had to dump them into a plastic bag so we could get rid of them. It was It was pretty great. But as I mentioned, I had to leave that audio on the cutting room floor. But there's actually audio that I recorded of myself that I had to edit out of an episode, I am Very rarely cutting an entire segment from an episode, especially once I've recorded it. Like a little part behind the curtains, but I write these scripts with a structure and I go from segment to segment to tell the story as fully and as narratively as I possibly can. But sometimes you find something along the way that that, that just doesn't totally fit into it, even though I recorded it. And that rarely happens, but it's still interesting what I recorded and I want to share it with you. It's about the barefoot mailman. If you recall, that story of the Barefoot Mailman, even that title of the Barefoot Mailman, has been fabricated and changed over the time. They weren't called the Barefoot Mailman at the time that they were walking. They were called the Mailwalkers. But a book was written by a man named Theodore Pratt that sort of galvanized everybody around that term, the Barefoot Mailman. That's what they have been known since, but they weren't called that at the time. That book is a fictionalized version of the life of a Barefoot Mailman. And then on top of that, there was a movie that was made about the Barefoot Mailman. And its plot has basically no relevance to what actually happened. So, here is the unreleased audio from that segment of the show when me and my guest in that episode, Rose Guerrero, discuss the fictions of the Barefoot Mailman and the attempts to turn it into a story that it just isn't and how unsuccessful they were in getting that story Retold. So you may have heard me talk about the Barefoot Mailman in the past. That is because I actually am friends with the people who distribute a book about the Barefoot Mailman called The Barefoot Mailman by one Theodore Pratt. I actually have done an episode about those publishers called The Shop of Lost Books. The shop itself is called Florida Classics Library. The folks over there publish the book. The Barefoot Mailman, and it's all about this sort of fictionalized version of The Barefoot Mailman. It is a great book. I have read through it, and, and it's a it's very much an old-fashioned type of book, but it captures sort of a nostalgia for this era that, that you don't see a lot of anymore. If you want to hear more about that, go listen to that episode, because how that book exists, who wrote it, why it's even being published by this company is an amazing story, and I'm very proud of that. And if you want to read it, go pick up a copy from Florida Classics Library. They are the most wonderful folks. In the state of Florida, but also there is a movie called the barefoot mailman and I'm a big movie watcher. I watch movies wherever I can. I watch old movies. I watch weird movies that people have forgotten. Let me tell you, you cannot find the barefoot mailman anywhere. It was directed by a man named Earl McAvoy, who, not a name I recognize, hasn't directed any other movies that I recognize. He only directed three movies, and his last one was The Barefoot Mailman. It came out in 1951. It stars a man named Robert Cummings. Robert Cummings was a legitimate star at this time. He was in the very famous movie Dial M for Murder. He had his own show, his own sitcom. The female lead was a woman named Terry Moore, who is in the original Mighty Joe Young. She is a significant actor. These are significant people that were in this movie that I cannot find for the life of me. But what's interesting is that it also doesn't seem to have anything to do with the actual barefoot mailman. It's a movie about a con artist in Florida, which is just not a barefoot mailman thing. That That's not even a story relevant. It doesn't it's not even really connected to what the book is about. It feels like in 1951 someone was trying to create a noir and somebody read the Theodore Pratt book and was like, "Yeah, that's kind of a good framework for a story. Let's turn that into a classic con story." But clearly it has made basically no impact because you cannot find it anywhere. You can't even find clips of it. It it may not even exist. The only evidence that I have of it is that it's on IMDb and other sources. That's the only place where I can prove that it exists. But But I am not the only person who knows that this book exists, that the Charles Pierce book exists, probably that this movie exists. And when you have a story like this that is so attractive, that can build up its own folk legends around it, it's hard to differentiate the truth of the story, which is in and of itself fascinating, from the stories that you would like it to be. Is, do you have a lot of people who are coming to you, having learned about the Barefoot Mailman from the book or the movie adaptation from the book, and have maybe some misconceptions of the story based on that sort of fictionalized version of it?
1: I think we have a lot of misconceptions about history just based off of miscommunication, mm-hmm. someone resharing stories from their from their life, and whether or not you know that's true or not. It, it allows you to to have a nostalgic feeling, and you you create some type of connection to it. Yeah. So people, yeah, people have watched. Watched a movie that talks about, you know, how the system worked. And at least you get a little bit of the history, even if it's not the full history.
0: It's just interesting to me. I've talked about it so much on this show, how much we want to make a more interesting version of the story as best as we can. When it's just not, the truth is just more interesting. Making some fabricated version of it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Be honest. The story, the truth of it is a lot more compelling than your falsified version of that story. Anyway, that is the end. That's all I wanted to tell you. It's been a busy springtime. A lot has been happening for me in my own life. A lot has been happening in the world of Florida. News that is upsetting at times, oftentimes quite depressing. It's a difficult thing when Florida becomes a matter of national news, especially when it's over things that are so unfortunate and, and wrong. It makes me feel, it makes it feel like, uh, like we're never going to convince anybody to actually care about Florida because people want to make this state something that it isn't. This state is not a hateful state bigoted place. This place is a place filled with people who rip berries out from their roots because they're hurting their forests and people who make adoption certificates for manatees and people who are kind of a little too obsessed with wildflowers. They this is a state filled with good people. We make heroes out of mailmen and biologists. That is who Florida is. So, I need to be reminded of those things sometimes and frankly That's what this episode was all about. A spring cleaning of all the good things. Things that I wanted to remember that I didn't want to just let go. Things that you needed to hear to make you feel as in love with this place as I often am. So thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I know this is a weird episode, but maybe it's exactly the kind of weird that someone you know would enjoy. So share it with a friend or or share the show on your social media. You can tag the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, or you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. People reach out and tell me how much they're enjoying the show, and it really means a lot to me. It's nice to know there's people out there listening all the time it really it really means a lot anyway i'd like to thank the voices you heard in this episode lily anderson missick stacy Matrazo, and rose guerrero i'd also like to thank gerald thompson for his suggestion about the pig frog so i could get the record straight about the sounds that i heard in the woods so thank you to all of them Go give their foundations and organizations a follow, some support. They're doing amazing, important things. I will include links to all of their organizations in the episode description. If you enjoyed this episode, go give them some support. All right. I will be back next week with the finale of this spring season. Then we're going to take a couple weeks off and we'll be back in June for an amazing summer season. The 10th season of Wait 5 Minutes. I have some truly, I know I say this every season. I know I say I've got some amazing stuff on the horizon, but seriously, there is some amazing stuff on the horizon. You are going to love it. So, I'll see you next Monday for the finale, and then I will see you in June for the fabulous, fantastic, wonderful summer season. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good week. I will see you next Monday.